John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and 9 to 14. The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and then 9 uh, to 14. And let's give our attentive uh, listening to uh, the reading of God's holy and errant word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us on this uh, particular Sunday uh, to remember the birth of your Son into this world and to give you thanks and to be reminded of what that means. Uh, Lord, we, we're now sitting before uh, your words, the words of the very King. Um, help us to Therefore, receive it as such, as your, as your servants, as your subjects. Those who are here seeking and questioning, uh, may the truths embedded here uh, give them the answers, uh, not only to their questions, but answers to questions that they ought to be asking. In all these ways, God, let your word be sufficient for us. Uh, let your word be true. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this passage is about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and uh, it's appropriate to learn a bit more about the incarnation of Christ on Christmas Sunday. It's also one of the most central doctrines of Christianity. Um, but it's helpful to note, before we get into this somewhat mythical-sounding, mystical-sounding doctrine, uh, like we observed last week, how historical the story of Christ is to begin with. No serious scholar today disputes the historical uh, reality of Christ. Um, the Bible goes one step further in explaining how was it that he, he, he was able to do the things that he did and have the apostles testify to the things that they testified to. Um, and the Bible says that's because this is the Son of God born into humanity. Um, this is the eternal second person of the Trinity, uh, born of a, a, a teenage a virgin girl named Mary, and this is how God took on human nature uh, without subtracting any from it, anything from its divine nature and entered into the world. That's the incarnation. And it amazes me still today as I think about it um, that the incarnation doesn't just mean that the Son of God took on human nature only for some duration of his earthly existence, but when he chose to be born of a woman, he, he chose to took, took, take upon himself human nature for all of his eternal existence. In this very moment, Jesus sits on the throne, fully divine and fully human. 
the condescension of the Son of God, where he descended down to this level of carrying creaturely shell. It was not a con- it's not temporary condescension. It was an eternal condescension. And if that does not blow your mind, you should just think about that the rest of today until it does. When he committed to loving us, loving the church, he made an eternal commitment, even if that meant conforming himself eternally to their form, to our form. And Philippians 2 tells us he did that willingly and gladly for the sake of his chosen people, his bride, his church. And the implication of this doctrine on our love and life is vital. But before we go on, let's just get get something out of the way. And that is that this talk of doctrine isn't unique to Christianity. Whenever you make any assertion uh, that life is about fill in the blank, um, you're making a doctrinal statement. It's a dogmatic statement that says uh, whatever contradicts this is wrong. And that, and that this is the truest way to live. This is the truest way to love. Um, why is it that in our music, in our literature, in our poetry, uh, we love to, to, to sing about and write about a love that never ends, an undying love, right? This, this concept permeates our livelihood. What justifies it? And to this day, I, I cannot think of anything else that justifies that better than the Incarnation. God's love entering into our world. Uh, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, nor bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. Why, why do we care what Shakespeare has to say about love if we're just animals in the jungle striving to survive and the fittest will and the weakest will die off? Why do we care about the deeper meaning of love? Maybe it's because we're not just animals. Maybe we are image bearers, bearing the image of divine love, of a loving God. And so it's not sufficient for us to say the strongest will survive and the weakest will die off. But see, to say in the midst of that biological reality, to say, no, there's something that matters more than survival and that is love, you're making a doctrinal statement. And you've got to ground that in something. You can't just blindly assert that. You've got to ground that in something. And the Christian way of grounding that is the doctrine of incarnation. That's why this doctrine matters. Without this doctrine, you, you only have blind faith, and I, I hope love matters in this jungle, in this Darwinian jungle. The scripture says it does matter. It is real because of the incarnation. And that's what our passage is telling us about today, uh, this, this love that we've been offered through the incarnate God. And it's not just a doctrine. It's a doctrine of love, and that's why we want to celebrate it and appreciate it. So let me share with you three things about this incarnation, this doctrine of the incarnation and how that communicates to us about God's love. First, this shows us a love that becomes, a love that becomes for us. Second, this shows us a love that dwells with us, love that dwells with us. And lastly, this shows us a love that we can see and behold, all right? Love that becomes for us, a love that dwells with us, and a love that we have to see and behold. All right, what do I mean by a love that becomes? Well, it says in verse 14, the first part of verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. This is the the Greek word that means to enter into a certain state or a certain condition. The word, the creator of the world, 
logos entered into our state of humanly flesh. God became a man. And, and we should just keep saying that and sit with that until that wows us. Because this is, this is as paradoxical as saying uh, the one who is uncreated took on created form. Or the one who had no beginning began. Uh, it's paradoxical. The theologian Frederick Bogner goes further to say this is more than paradoxical. He says, quote, the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in a baby's diapers. This is not just paradoxical. This is scandalous. This is wrong. This should not be. And, and, and it's really um, violating our sense of propriety as it should. It should violate our sense of propriety. And it's really when it does, and you realize how scandalous this is, that's when you really begin to see just how amazing God's love truly is. Will you put on diapers for someone? Uh, a love that is utterly condescending, utterly humble, self-forgetful, and sacrificial. This is what we have in the incarnation. Uh, he's God who is willing to fundamentally change his form forever in order to become like his object of love, to draw near to them and to draw them out of their darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, the incarnation shows us that God's love is a love that becomes. And that's the love behind Christmas. This paradoxical, scandalous love of the one who, who gave birth to all things now being born to become like his object of love. Um, Richard Crenshaw, the 17th century English poet, put it this way. Welcome all wonders in one night, eternity shut in a span, summer in winter, day in night, heaven in earth, and God in man. Great little one whose all-embracing birth lifts earth to heaven, stoops heaven to earth. Great little one. Lifts earth to heaven, stoops heaven to earth. Christmas is about God becoming small. Uh, it's God's message to the world saying, I'm, I'm entering into your world, your humanity, your womb, uh, to be near you, to be with you, to become like you. That's the extent to which God has drawn near to us. He's, he's gone the distance of becoming like us. Even if that means God the greatest becomes small. The Almighty becoming weak. Now let's apply that just to our lives for a moment, to our reality for a second here. Um, and notice, first of all, uh, despite what our, our culture has been preaching to us, and, and according to the cultural doctrine, that, that what matters ultimately in your life is your individualism, uh, your love for yourself, uh, and, and, and you do you, and, and, and self-care, and all that, and all the consumerism that, that goes around that, we still know deep inside that, that this is love. <laughs> self-giving, self-sacrifice. Uh, rather than demanding my needs be met, meeting the needs of others, uh, not demanding control, but conforming instead to those who are in need. Somehow we know, even if we don't live like it, that this is, this is higher love. Uh, it, it, you know, we see this in a lot of our parents, I think. Parents 
conforming every part of their lives to their children's needs, right? Their, their infant even children's needs, the way that parents speak, right? The way that they arrange the furniture at home, the way they, they schedule their week, the way they budget their money. It, does, it doesn't revolve around them. It revolves around the children, and, and that's love. Even if the children don't know how to appreciate that and reciprocate that, we'll, st- we'll still call that one-way love true love. The Bible tells us this is the kind of love that we have received from God. Whether you're great at reciprocating it or not, the one who is equal with God did not champion his equality, what he is entitled to, but he emptied himself, he made himself lower than everyone, he's conformed in every way to his object of love, to become like them, to serve them, and to love them, and to save them. That's the scandalous and beautiful doctrine of the Incarnation. And, and the Apostle Paul actually tells us in Philippians 2 that we, we can actually, through the help of Christ, have this mindset in ourselves. We can have this mind of Christ. How? By first receiving this love from God, from Christ. Uh, you cannot give this if you don't have this, if you haven't received this yourself. You, you cannot love those who are difficult to love until you realize God has loved you when you're difficult to love. Uh, it's like what, what he says to the woman in Luke chapter 7, those who are forgiven much love much. And so that means if you love little, that means you, you see yourself as someone who's forgiven very little. You see yourself as someone who's received very little grace. And perhaps you don't have much sin to forgive to begin with. And that makes you someone who struggles with loving others. But we can have this mind among ourselves, Paul says. We can become the other and love and serve the other if you realize just to what extent Christ has come to become like you and serve you and love you. How he's gone the extra mile for you. How he has gone the entire distance for you. Then you can go the extra mile and go the distance for others. Uh, Remember the song, I Can Go the Distance from Hercules? My children love that movie, so I've I've been thinking about this somewhat. He says... I'll be there someday, well, he sings. I'll be there someday, I can go the distance. I will find my way if I can be strong. I know every mile would be worth my while. When I go the distance, I'll be right where I belong. He's saying he can go the distance if he can be strong. For what? For me to get to where I belong. For, for my goals, for my dreams, for my ambitions, for my pride. I can go the distance if I can be strong. Every mile, it will be worth my while. Why? Because it's for me. What is Jesus' song? That he will go the distance for others, for you and me, and that will be worth his while. That he would become like the object of his love and go the distance for them. Because if you think about it, you can go the distance You can find the way home if you can be strong. That's not good news, is it? I mean, that's like telling you, you can work the extra hours. You can can study the extra hours. You can go the distance. All the pressure's on you. All the burdens are on your shoulders. You can do it. That's terrible news. But if the message is, there is a Savior who would, 
become like you, to draw near to you and go the distance for you through all the ups and downs of life, that's good news. And that's the incarnation. God becoming one of us to serve us, to love us, and to save us, and to draw us to himself. And secondly, you see in the very same verse, the incarnation shows that God's love is a love that dwells. And the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. The word here, dwell, literally means to pitch a tent, to live inside it, to reside in permanently. That's how they, that's how they moved around. That's how they established their, their livelihood. You pitch a tent. That's what dwelling means. And he says, the word became flesh to dwell among us. Us. Who's us? Uh, by us, John means the world, all the people in it. But also, verse 10, when he uses the word world, he also means everything in the world, everything included in the world, all the conditions of the world, all of its spaces and settings and situations. And so what this also means is that the word of God that became flesh, he, he didn't just enter into the world this way just to simply take on a human form for his beloved, but also to show them show them how to go on living in this world, our spaces, our settings and situations, as he would, as he would have us live, as light would live in the darkness. He's come to pitch a tent next to us, to live among us, and really to live inside us, to show us how to be in this world while not being of this world. And when you can see that he is this near you, that he is with you, and you really believe that, that will change everything about the way you see your space, setting, and situation. Uh, he will essentially dignify it all and redeem it all and infuse all those spaces and settings and situations with a mission. Um, I don't know if you guys remember I ever mentioned the burger joint in Arlington, Virginia called Ray's Hellburger. This was all of the news a few years ago. Uh, it's just a little burger joint. That's how it started off as. Not a lot of seating. Uh, mostly it just serves regular burgers. Um, places like that are dime a dozen. But there's one thing that makes this particular restaurant really stand out among all the other uh, burger places. And that is the fact that back in 2010, the president of the United States took the president of Russia to that very restaurant, and they just sat down and had a good old American burger together. It was kind of the, the president's symbolic way of, here's, here's our food, and here we are in our country. Uh, and, and that, being on the news, it just blew the place up, uh, and it just kind of became instantly popular uh, owner had to open up more restaurants in the area and so on. But did he change anything? No. He, nothing changed in his recipe. Um, things probably tasted pretty much the same, and the seating was, was also pretty old and shabby. Um, but it's the fact that the president sat there, and not one, two presidents, sat there, ate there, dwelled there for a little while, suddenly made that place glorious. He could, have, he could have chosen any restaurant, but he chose that one. And that redeems everything about the restaurant. You have to understand the significance of the Son of God, the maker of the universe, not just dining in for a little bit, 
but dwelling in and living in, permanently residing in your life and mine. Despite its old and shabby conditions, despite our, our burgers tasting pretty bland and ordinary. He dwells in our every space, setting, and situation. He could have, he could have dwelled in anyone, but he chose to dwell with you and me. And, and when he does that, what he's there to say is not, I'm going to suddenly, overnight, change everything in your life for the better. All your trials will disappear. All your suffering, poof, and, and gone. He's saying, I am here, and that's all you need. To see the dignity of your life, to see the value to your life, to see the mission in your life, to see that I am there. I am there with you. I am dwelling with you. Uh, I, I was thinking about how this might apply to someone struggling in a, in a financial and material way. Because um, I think that would be a very uh, clear s- sort of scenario where someone's thinking, yeah, I guess I, guess I could use some Jesus in my life, but, but I think the, urgent, the more urgent thing seems to be money. I want money. I need money. How will this be real to this person? How will being with Jesus change things? And, and I thought about it, and I think it might begin with this. Begin with the awareness, in my poorness, God is still with me. God still identifies me, with me, in my poverty. He, he's okay with dwelling with me there. His dwelling with me is not conditioned on my richness or my poverty, but on his love for me. So, okay, maybe I can go about trying to pay the bills from month to month, considering how he is with me. I can consider how I can budget my finances, considering how he is with me. I can put whatever I can into my savings, considering he is with me. And I'll strive to pay off the, whatever debt I have, considering he is with me. I can say no to extravagant, wasteful spending, considering he is with me. And I can perhaps even bless others and dwell with others who are poorer than I am, less privileged than I am, considering he is with me. And the more you begin to infuse his withness, his presence in your life, even, even the difficulties and the trials in your life can be, can be missional, whether that trial is financial, physical, relational, or vocational. The point is not that Jesus would come and suddenly transform all your surroundings. The point is for him to enter into your life, for you to say, because I've had, I have him, suddenly I realize I have all I need. He's turning our attention to not what is around us, but who, who is with us. Like a, like a little child who's scared of the, the, the thunders in the middle of the night will be okay as long as mommy and daddy were with them. Even the, the storm is still raging outside. The circumstances hasn't changed. But it's who is with me, who is dwelling with me that changes everything. Might that be the point of the incarnation? Light entering into our darkness, God entering into humanity. I, I get questions about... Um, new churches from members who've moved out of town from time to time. 
where should I go visit and do you know any churches in this area? And they'll pay a visit or two if, if I recommend a few places, they'll, and then they'll follow up with me and I'll ask them, how was it? And um, there are a few occasions when they will come back and tell me something like this. They'll say, well, it wasn't all that impressive. Uh, the preacher was whatever, the music was whatever, the people were whatever. Everything was just kind of bland, maybe kind of boring. And then I would ask them something like this, all right? But was everything true? And they're like, what do you mean by that? I mean, the, the words that they were singing, uh, the, the message that the preacher was preaching, the things that people were confessing and professing to believe, were they true? Are they true things? Did you get the gospel in Christ from, from the service? And then sometimes they would say things like, yeah, I guess I got that, but that's not what I'm talking about. But is that not the most important thing? Isn't that where our focus should be more than all the externalities that, that impress us, whether Christ and his gospel dwells in that church and, and therefore in those who attend that church, right? I mean, what are, you, what are you trying to go to church for? So you can go to church and go home with a feeling or go to church and go home with a truth that's true regardless of how you feel. Are you going to church for an experience or a truth that transcends that experience? And our culture is one that's pretty fixated, I would say, on, on the external appearance and experience, wouldn't you say? It, it, so it's natural for us, in a sense, to feel a certain pressure to, to conform to this other doctrine, cultural doctrine, that says your external experience and situations, they're a direct reflection of who you are. Your external quality is a direct reflection of your internal quality. And so when there's a, when there's a threat out there, right, there's insecurity out there that automatically translates into this inner anxiety, inner insecurity. Why? Because what's out there is what you are. You are your situations. You are your experiences. You are how you feel. But that's in a sense, that's confusing what we're really struggling with, isn't it? It's not ultimately the external experience per se. It's what you think the external experience says about you. That's what you're really struggling with, isn't it? It's when this experience seems to be saying, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm miserable, I'm not in control, no one cares. I'm stuck alone in this mess, in this difficulty, in this brokenness, in this pain. And, and to remain here is to be identified with it. That's what my world tells me. And so I, I don't want this. Maybe that's some of your struggles. But see, you have to see the gospel is the good news that comes along and says, in a very countercultural way, yeah, you may not want that. Nobody else might want that. Jesus wants that. And he's come to dwell with you in that. He will be there to be identified with such things if that's what it takes to be with you. He doesn't care what other people say. He's okay with God becoming a baby born in a manger if that's what it takes to draw near. And that's why the gospel, when you continue on reading, is about Christ being with those who are spiritually hungry, thirsty, those who are in need of comfort, those who are suffering, those who are mourning, those who are grieving, those who are weighed down by their guilt and shame, and those who are in need of repentance and forgiveness of their sins, those who feel chained by their past. Christ has come to be with them, to dwell with them, and to begin healing them. That's the gospel. And that's the doctrine behind Christmas. 
God's love come to dwell among us despite all that's around us, to tell us, hey, what's all around you is not you. Who you're with, that's, that's you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That should be a Christmas song, because that's why he has come. That's the good news behind Christmas. Here's a, here's a last point. There's the, the becoming and the dwelling. The incarnation shows us that God's love is something we have to see and behold. See and behold. And that's what it says in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the, the part I want you to hone in on here is how John, the Apostle John doesn't say, we have achieved his glory. We have accessed his glory. We have mastered his, we have obeyed our way through. No, we've seen it. It's been shown to us. We've beheld it. Like, like you would behold uh, a beautiful artwork, a symphony orchestra. You just, you just, you're, you're there still and, and passive and observant. We have seen his glory. We have beheld his grace and truth. And this is how the Son of God came to dwell with us, not to come to us and say, okay, you show me what you got. No, let me show you what I, what I brought you. He's not here to say, show me your glory. He, he's come to say, let me show you mine. You see, our job is to behold him, not to do things for him, first and foremost. The call here is not to do, is not to fix, not to transform yourself, not to set all your ducks in a row. Behold. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Not reach, not accomplish, not obey your way to see. Hail the incarnate deity, please in flesh with us to dwell, or as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. So, so what, is, what do the angels sing? Hark, which means to listen, which is another passive thing we do. We, we don't really do much when we're listening. Hark, listen to the angels sing what? Glory to the newborn king. Do you realize if you can sing that honestly from your heart, that frees you from something, from making your life glorious. It frees you from this busyness and craziness about making your life the most glorious thing that you've ever seen. To turn to everyone around you and say, look, look, at, look at my life. Look how glorious it is. And let me prove it to you by, by the kind of job I have, the kind of house I live in, and the car I drive, and the amount of money I have, and the, the physical appearance I, I have. Let me show you my glory how this frees you from that kind of crazy, busy obsession with self-glory. Instead, it frees you to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and not mine. I'm tired of hallowing my name. I'm weary of glorifying my life. 
And if that's you, Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Rest in, in the true glory of God and, and you will be satisfied. Like, like you're satisfied when you behold something truly majestic, truly amazing, whether it's in the museum or in a concert hall or someone you love. It'll satisfy you. And not only that, this would change you. This Beholding the glory doesn't just leave you passive forever. It does lead you to be proactive. It, it, it gives you the motive and the drive to get up, to get out of bed, to make your bed, and go to work. Uh, it, it's, it's like the difference between you know a mom telling a kid to clean his room and the, and the kid says, oh, can I do it later? I'm tired, I'm bored, right? I don't care if my room's messy, right? But, but if the call is, hey, uh, clean your room because your, your, favorite, your favorite teacher from school is going to come and sleep over in your room, then that's a different story, right? Then don't you want to clean up your room and get things in order? And not, not because you feel like the, the person who's staying would judge you or condemn you for it, but because you want to please them because you love them. That's how Jesus drives us to change. It's not clean your room or else. It's, he's not so condemning as that. It's, I'm, I'm here to dwell with you, to live with you. Will, you. will you welcome me in? Will you prepare room for me in your heart? And those who are his sheep will respond to the shepherd that way. Yes, Lord, enter in. Right? Be the king who sits on the throne of my heart. When you realize Christ wants to dwell in your heart this way, in your, in your poorness, brokenness, that, that is when you get lifted first with the sense of, oh, wow, me? He's coming to me. Knowing full well that I'm a mess, knowing full well I'm a closet full of shameful things, he wants to be with me? Yes. Then the second sense of this overwhelming joy in you is, is this calling then to, okay, I want to prepare my life for him. I want to receive him with an appropriate response as my king, with my obedience, with my worship, with my praise. That's your secondary response first is the seeing and beholding and and comes naturally your your doing and your your obeying but it begins with the gospel that says come and see come behold this mystery of the son of god become man and this is what this is what christmas is about and this is what the church is about this is what we come to church for um, not for an experience not for a feeling, but for this truth. And, and on the surface, it may not be extravagant, just as this table on the surface is not extravagant. But what is, what is the truth packed within it? God loves me. Despite how undeserving I am and how messed up I am, he forgives me and he's willing to dwell with me in the here and now, knowing I have issues, knowing I'm weak in my resolve, knowing that I cannot fully reciprocate the, the love that he would show me, knowing all that he is choosing to dwell with me. And the only question for us is whether we find that to be true and beautiful. Because only then will we respond by opening up our lives to him and in our hearts prepare him room and say, Lord, yes, um, I want your new, new life. Give me your new life because that's why you have come. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, 
born to give us second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. There's only one way to truly celebrate Christmas, and that is making Christ your king, because that's why he's come, to be king. Uh, he's didn't come, he didn't come to be a, a, a religious icon or an image or to be a good moral teacher that would coach you morally through, through the rest of your life. He came to be this glorious king to free you from your enslavement to self-glory. Will you receive him? Will you prepare in your hearts room for him this season? Consider that. And consider that as the, the true, authentic, non-ritualistic way of celebrating Christmas this year. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your good news um, that tells us uh, this love has come. Uh, this love has come to us when we were most undeserving, uh, when we were dead in our sins, uh, when we were not even asking, Lord, uh, You've gone the distance, and that's what this good news means. Uh, help us to see it and behold it. And at the table, Lord, help us to taste it even and, and be reminded of it. And Lord, would you empower us then uh, to live in a way that is so countercultural and not like this world. Um, live to serve. Live to give. Live to sacrifice. Live to carry our cross. To go the distance for others. Um, to go the extra mile for others. Uh, empower us to live as Christ did in this world. Remind us of his, his nearness and his dwelling in our hearts, in our lives, in every setting, every space, every situation. We thank you. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.